Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. This is the word of God. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for what we're about to study, which is what we have in Christ, what we have in you. Thank you for each of these things. Speak to us this morning through your word and through your spirit. And uh, we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Addiction is a tricky thing. We're beginning to understand it better as research improves and, and uh, we have better studies and things. A, a simplified version of the DSM's criteria for addiction goes something like this. If you're wanting to cut down on the use of a substance but you're not able to, that's a, that's a factor, an element. Uh, not managing to do what you should be able to do at work or, or school or home, um, continuing to use uh, the substance even when it causes problems in relationships, taking the substance in larger amounts or for longer than you're supposed to, needing more of the substance to get the desired effect or you're building up a, a tolerance or a resistance to it, and the development of withdrawal symptoms which can be relieved by taking more of the substance. These are some chemical addiction. There's behavioral addiction and things like that um, where you can become addicted to not just drugs and alcohol, but things like TV. There's behavioral addiction when you um, become addicted to pornography. So imagine with me this morning that, that you have become addicted to a substance, maybe alcohol. Imagine that your addiction has broken many of your most cherished relationships. It's caused you to offend your family and friends. After being confronted by some of your loved ones about the effect that it's had on your life and about what appears to be a, a slavery to this substance, you look up an AA group and uh, you hope to undo some of the damage. 
you find it, it's on a weekday night, get in your car, you pull up to the first meeting, you think the GPS must be wrong because you've pulled into the parking lot of a golf course that has a temporary tent for a clubhouse. You, of course, love golf like anybody. <laughs> but you haven't played for several years because your addiction has gotten in the way. But the address is correct. You, you walk in and you see the signs, grab a cup of coffee, and you sit down in the circle. You do this for a few weeks, and after a couple of times, you're assigned a sponsor. And your sponsor meets up with you and tells you that you will defeat your addiction. It's a certainty. And he tells you that when you go and ask forgiveness for the people that you've offended and the lives that you've impacted because of your addiction, they will forgive you. He goes on to tell you that as a benefit of being part of this AA group, it's a lifetime thing. And as a benefit, you're, you're allowed to play as much golf as you'd like at this golf course, free of charge. Just call ahead and make a tee time, you'll be all set. Your sponsor also tells you they'll be available to you 24-7. And they're going to be a lifelong friend to you and fill all your needs for sponsorship and friendship. This seems pretty... This seems pretty good so far, but as if that wasn't enough, they go on. They're, he tells you they're, they're building a clubhouse in, in place of this tent structure. And that clubhouse is going to have a full spa. It'll have a salon, a sauna, a steam room. It'll have a pool, personal trainers, five-star restaurant, and a golf simulator so you can play in the winter. When it's done you'll have full membership privileges just by virtue of you being a member of this AA group. It sounds too good to be true, but this is what we have in Christ. We have redemption and freedom from our slavery to sin, as we just sang. Not only do we, are we set free from, from our sin, which would be enough, would it not? But we have forgiveness, full and permanent forgiveness for the sins that we've committed, our intentional rebellion against God. Not only that, but we, we have an abundance of grace and blessings, an overwhelming amount of, of things that are just added to us that we have certainly not earned. On top of that, we have God's Spirit that lives within us, encouraging us, bringing to mind Scripture and encouragement when we need it. Not only that, but we have the promise of a future inheritance. The title of today's sermon comes from Psalm 103. Psalm 103 begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. This whole section in today's passage, even uh, starting back in verse 3, is an explosion of worship to God. 
pointing out to the Ephesians what we have in Christ. It's right in the beginning. He says, hey, hi guys, I'm Paul, I'm writing to you. Boom, explosion of worship. Here's what we have in Christ. So uh, I hope you'll join me in simply worshiping this morning as we look into these things. <clears throat> little background, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, uh, it's, it's a non-occasional letter, so it was, it's not like he's writing to correct some sort of behavior or address a problem in the Ephesian church. It was likely written while he was under house arrest in Rome. Um, but what we see here is he's, he's writing to his friends, and he just can't help himself. He's so excited to, that they, yeah, as we'll see next week and the following week, he's so excited for them that they're a part of this, and they get to enjoy this inheritance and these things. So we could very easily just read from 3 to 17 here, and just be blessed by it, and say amen, and kind of move on. But the wonderful thing about Paul, and about the inspired word that we have, is there's, we can dig into it, and spend hours studying even the opening of a letter. Um, so let's, let's look at verses 7 and 8. If you haven't turned there already, it's in uh, page 976 in your, your Bible in the seat back there. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. In him, meaning Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us, Oh, that's verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will, which we'll get into later. <clears throat> In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. He redeemed us from our slavery to sin, our addiction to sin. We were slaves. We were in bondage, held against our will by an evil force. We were unable to escape. And Jesus set us free. This leads us to the first point in your outline. We are redeemed. So in order to talk about redemption, really the only colloquial term that we, or colloquial uh, circumstance we use this term in now is with respect to real estate probably. But redemption talks about slavery or bondage. And if we're, ta- if we're talking about slavery or bondage, we have to talk about who our master is, how we got there, and, and, and why. So... Turn with me over to Romans chapter 6. You're going to want to keep a finger here in Romans. Uh, Now, as you turn there, uh, it's important to note, slavery is not a good word in America uh, because of our national history and because of the racial slave trade that that occurred in the 16th, 17th and 18th century, and 19th century even. Um, Thankfully, we have put that behind us. But the slavery in the Bible was much, much different from that racial slavery that we experienced in uh, in those colonial America and and imperial England. Um, Slavery in the Bible and in ancient times was much more of an economic slavery. So you could actually voluntarily put yourself into slavery to pay off a debt. Sometimes you would be put there involuntarily. 
Um, sometimes you would be a slave as part of a uh, being a conquered people. Um, but it, it, it didn't, aside from being part of a conquered people, there was really nothing having to do with race here. This is much more a, either an economic result or a, or a um, warfare uh, result. So, um, all right, Romans 6. Uh, look at verse uh, 16 with me. This is going to be a slightly long read, but, uh, but stick with me. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone... As obedient slaves, you're slaves to the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were once slaves of sin, you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin... You've become slaves of righteousness. And Paul interjects here. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which led to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. He means righteousness was not your master. That's not what you were pursuing. But in that circumstance, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? What was the fruit? The end of those things is death. But now you've been set free from sin. And you've become slaves of God. The fruit you get now leads to sanctification and its end Eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is this slavery idea. It's not a metaphor because it's actually true. It's a slice of the gospel. Even though we don't like this term in today's society, this is a beautiful picture. Paul's saying, we are slaves. That is our station. As humans, we are slaves. We must only choose our master. We can either be slaves to sin, which results in death, or we can accept the freedom that Christ has won for us and serve him. And the result is not death. But the result is eternal life. If we don't accept the freedom that Christ has won for us, we will always choose our own interests over others. We'll always hurt people. We'll always fail to please God. And we'll always be destined for his wrath. But we can have freedom from that slavery. And serve a new, gracious, and even loving master. He's redeemed us out of that by paying our debt himself. By the death of Jesus on the cross. And we can now serve him. So if we serve sin, as I said, and as we read here, the result is death. But if we serve God, we're not only working off a life debt. As someone who has saved our life out of a 
uh, out of a, a, a damnation eternity. But our master will give us untold benefits on top of that during this life and then some during eternity. British theologian John Stott points out that in the Old Testament, this is a little background on redemption in the Old Testament, so hang with me here. It's good to understand, though. In the Old Testament, property, animals, people, and the nation of Israel were all redeemed by the payment of a price. So, examples of Boaz in the book of Ruth and Jeremiah in his own book, both played the role of kinsman redeemer that Jesus would later play uh, to redeem us. And they bought back property that had been alienated from their family or from their tribe. But each had to pay a ransom in order to keep it there. Uh, Individual Israelites had to pay a a ransom for their life at the national census. Uh, And firstborn sons, uh, who since the first Passover in Egypt belonged to God, the firstborn son had to be redeemed. um, And there had to be a price given to God to redeem his life. Um, in, in these and other cases, there is a decisive and costly intervention in order to redeem somebody from a poor situation. Jesus says in, in Mark 10.45 on the subject, referring to himself, he says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Stott points out the imagery implies that we're held in a captivity from which only the payment of a ransom can set us free, and that the ransom is nothing less than the Messiah's own life. Christ has set us free from our slavery to sin, our addiction to evil, and our servanthood to self. That's point one. Point two in your outline, still in in verses seven and, and eight. Point two is, we are forgiven. So not only are we saved out of slavery from a third party wishing us evil, redeemed from an impossible situation from which we could not get ourselves out, but he forgave our trespasses, those things which we willingly and knowingly did in rebellion against God and his law. Those times we say, God, I I know what you would have me do, and I'm going to do the opposite. Because I want to. So not only did God set us free from slavery, but he forgave us for actively rebelling against him. So the context here is we're out of bondage to sin. We serve a better master. And when we're serving the better master, we go and do something that's against his rules. We have a relationship with him, though, and rather than punishing us, he forgives us. Now, I don't know about you, but I still feel feelings of guilt for things that I've done in my past. And um, there was a period during which I I went back and um, asked some of those people to forgive me, which they uh, gracefully and, and quickly did. Um, But when those mistakes come to mind, 
uh, I, I actually have to remember the forgiveness. I have to remind myself, no, they forgave me for that. And when I, when I asked for their forgiveness, I'd also asked for God's forgiveness. And I know he forgave me also. But the enemy loves to throw our mistakes back in our face, even years later. He's known as the accuser in Revelation 12. He knows our guilt well, and he would do anything for us to forget that we are forgiven. So we have to hang on to this. We have to remember that we are forgiven. But look, if, this morning, if you have some sin or offense in your life that you haven't asked for forgiveness for, I urge you to do yourself a favor and ask for forgiveness. It's not easy. But it's, not only is it the right thing to do, but it will benefit you. It will benefit your mental health. And it will help you move forward. And when you get forgiveness, you will always get forgiveness from God when you ask for it, by the way. But if you don't get it from that person that you've wronged, just be patient. (laughs) Maybe it'll take some time. But you will get forgiveness from God. So continuing on in our passage, not only are we set free and redeemed from slavery, not only are we forgiven for our wrongful acts toward God, but look at the last part of verse 7 through 10 here. As we look at point 3 in your outline, we are blessed. The riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, According to, the purpose, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. There's a lot of concepts in there. But, but let's unpack this. Commentators disagree on, on whether God lavished upon us wisdom and insight as part of his gifts to us, or whether God in his wisdom and insight, lavished gifts upon us. But what's not disputed is that God's gift of wisdom and insight to us uh, is, uh, is a gift and that we have it. The only dispute is whether it's explicit or implicit in this piece. Um, if we want wisdom, first of all, Proverbs throughout it, but especially Proverbs 2, urges us to get wisdom, get insight, says the father to his, his child. And in James, we see, if we ask of God, he will give us wisdom. So we are, it is available to us. We must only ask and seek it. So we have this gift of, of wisdom and insight. Uh, and as we'll see in a few minutes, we have the Holy Spirit, which interprets scripture for us. And gives us further wisdom and insight for life. But as, as, uh, as part of this insight that we have, God revealed to us what his plan is. His plan to reconcile or to unite all things in him. To bring us back to him. He's rescuing us, he's forgiving us, and he's telling us his plan through scripture and through his Holy Spirit. And his plan is to dwell with us again. 
This desire that God has to unite all things in him is a desire to be with his creatures. Last week, Lars preached on how we as Christians were chosen as God's people before the foundation of the world. He chose Israel to demonstrate his love and his holiness. Men in the Old Testament, God gave Israel lots of very specific instructions on how to build the tabernacle and how to make this space for the Holy of Holies, where the, the Ark of the Covenant would be. And very specific instructions on what materials and the measurements and all these things. He did this so that he could be with them, that he could be in their midst. The temple was in the very center of the settlements of Israel. The tents went out like a, like a plus sign. And in the middle was the tabernacle. He was in their midst. And he's always wanted this. He's always wanted to be with his people. In the garden, he was with Adam and Eve. He would walk with them in the cool of the day before sin entered the world. God was with Abraham when Abraham had to leave his home and go to a new place in obedience to God. He was with Moses. He was with uh, Moses on the mountaintop and his people in the tabernacle, as I mentioned later in the, in the first and second temples. As we just celebrated, he was with his people in the flesh, in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, was Jesus' name, one of Jesus' names. At Pentecost, after Jesus ascended to heaven, God sent his spirit on, onto the believers, which we now enjoy today. We have the very presence of God with us, very really. In Revelation 21, verse 3, we read, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. These verses and these themes highlight one lens which you can see, uh, one, one thread through scripture, one motivation that God has. There are more. But this thread of God seeking to be with his people goes from Genesis to Revelation. And he will be with you. Friends, He's with you now through his Holy Spirit. And soon, come Lord Jesus, we will experience the presence of God in his full glory. Point four in your outline is we are adopted and drawn to God. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. In him, in Christ... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We have an inheritance. On top of all these things we've already looked at, we have an inheritance. And who, who gets inheritances? Children. Family. We are the adopted children of God. 
As we heard last week in verse 5, and as John writes in 1 John and elsewhere, we are the children of God. We are part of the family of the everlasting Yahweh. And he cares for us as he cares for children. And as we care for our own children, those are the same feelings he has toward us. Extreme, persistent, and intense love. We heard last week that God predestined us and chose us in him before the foundation of the world, as it says in verse 4, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He predestined us for adoption. We looked at the slavery metaphor, and now we're in the family. Not only are we slaves, but we are also children of God. If you didn't attend last week, again, uh, like Nate, I, I will encourage you to, to listen online. It's foundational to the full understanding of, this, the, do, of the doctrine of election and also the, the backbone of this book. So let's pause here for, for just a moment and notice something. How much does a, a young child, an infant, say, have to do with being adopted? How much does a slave have to do with being redeemed or purchased? And how much does a dead person have to do with being made alive? God has acted, and we receive the benefit. We are not adopted, redeemed, forgiven because of anything that we have done. But we are all those things because of what God has done. So, what is this inheritance? Learning this, hearing this as I, as I grew up in the church, I always wanted more detail, a little more flesh on this idea of, okay, we have an inheritance. It's something kind of in the future. It's, it's tough to define. What is this? But as I've studied uh, over, over the last few years, everything is there that we need. Our inheritance is heaven. Our inheritance is being clothed in Christ's righteousness so we can enjoy unfettered relationship with the God of the universe. It's no longer being influenced by sin. Our inheritance is the new bodies that we will be given at the end of this age. Our inheritance is a home in the new creation, in the new heavens and the new earth which will be recreated without the influence of sin. Our inheritance is better friendships and kinship with each other. Our inheritance is freedom from pain, physical and emotional. Freedom from grief, for Jesus will wipe away every tear. It's freedom from addiction and crime and brokenness, all these things we will enjoy after this broken world is done away with. I don't know about you, but the longer I live and the more pain, grief, brokenness that I experience, the more I long for heaven. When someone puts you in their will, when you're given an inheritance and they tell you, um, I'm going to put you in my will. It's a humbling thing. Uh, if you're like me, you don't want to 
you want to be grateful, but you also don't want to think about that person's death, and like waiting, rubbing your hands uh, for the things you'll get. You know, maybe it'll be important stuff. Maybe it'll be you know enough money for you to be financially independent, and pay off your student debt, or uh, maybe it's going to be a, a piece of property that's been in the family a long time, or whatever it is. You know, when they say that they're going to put us. Uh, in their will, you know, we, we trust that they're going to do that. Uh, what we don't do is we say, you know, that's great. Um, thanks, Dad. Could you swear out an affidavit for me um, saying that you'll never change your will and that uh, you'll never take me out? <laughs> um, that's, what do they say? It's like looking a gift horse in the mouth, um, inspecting a gift very closely and being ungrateful. Nevertheless, that's what God has done. He gave us a down payment on our inheritance. Point five in your outline is we are sealed. God has given us an advance, a promise that we will in fact receive the inheritance in full when the time comes. Now, listen to this. This is really beautiful. If our inheritance is being recreated in a sinless and perfect world, able to be in the presence of God, and able to not sin, in fact, unable to sin, if that's the full inheritance, then the down payment on that inheritance is the Holy Spirit. God dwelling with us in our current bodies, empowering us to not sin, and encouraging us and drawing us closer to God through his word and through prayer, and in fact dwelling with us. We have a shade of heaven. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation... And believed in him. He's saying, when you did these things, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God gives us a promise, a guarantee of our inheritance, as if we would doubt it. Of course, humans have been known to doubt God's promises as if you've read the Old Testament. So maybe this was God just heading it off at the pass. Believe me, you're going to get your inheritance. Like as was prayed in the, in the first service, um, as we took the communion, the Holy Spirit is as much God as Jesus is God. And as much as, the, as God the Father is God. Each member of the Godhead is equally God. And all are one God together. Look, if you heard the gospel and you believed in Jesus and you put your trust in what Jesus has done for you, then you very really have God with you every day. And again, we just celebrated Christmas when we sing Emmanuel, God with us. We could sing that one all year round because he is with us. Individually, 
every day. Okay, turn back to Romans with me. Romans 8. A friend of mine argues Romans 8 is the Holy Spirit chapter of the Bible, and I agree. As you look at the headings of Romans 8 that, that some of the Bible translators have put in there to kind of help categorize, what, you know, this section's about this. It actually really tracks very closely with what we're going through today. Life in the Spirit, heirs with Christ, future glory, God's everlasting love. So there's a lot of correspondence here between these two sections. Read with me Romans 8, 22 through 27. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, Grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is the promise given to us in the Holy Spirit. His presence in our lives is what Paul calls here, The first fruits of the new creation in verse 23. Just like we were talking about, if the full gift, if the full inheritance is sinlessness, new creation, unfettered presence with God, then a sliver of that is the presence of God in this broken world and the ability to not sin. And that's provided through the Holy Spirit. Look at at, uh, verse 23 in Romans 8. Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown for the redemption of our bodies. The first fruits of the Spirit is not the Spirit's first fruits. It means the first fruits of the new creation is the Spirit. It's the down payment on the inheritance. Just as Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, the very first of the new creation. The first fruits of our new creation, of our recreation, is the Spirit, and He begins that in us. Not only that, but the Spirit takes our weak and feeble prayers and makes them what they should be. I love language, Uh, but one limitation of language is that it can only express certain ideas. English is limited, and French is limited. So English has this great characteristic where we just kind of borrow phrases, joie de vivre, you know, from French. We, We borrow phrases from German and borrow phrases from Spanish, and we just make them English. 
and butcher the pronunciation. <laughs> so that's great. You know, we as English speakers have kind of said, we know English isn't going to do the whole job, but, um, but the Spirit takes whatever language we're praying in and whatever our mind can't quite express, and he translates that for us and brings our prayers to God. Romans 6, 7, and 8 are packed with ready-to-use truths for the Christian life. And I urge you to study those and just, just read through and flag what you want to follow up with more study on. There's a great series of books um, which were transcribed sermons from the 50s and 60s from a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, I don't know, it's eight, nine volumes. Um, the, the, the volume on three and four, Romans three and four, changed uh, how I read Romans. So highly encourage you to look into that and just read Romans 6, 7, 8. In conclusion here, it's well recognized by sociologists and, and it's kind of obvious to parents um, and, and maybe students and teachers that a student's home life has a huge impact on their, on their school performance. And students with unstable home lives tend not to perform as well. Students with stable home lives, when they're at school, they're not thinking about whether they're going to get beaten by an abuser at home or whether they're going to get uh, shot walking through their neighborhood to the bus stop. So when they're at school, when, when students with stable home lives are at school, they can focus on learning algebra or geometry, listening to the history lesson. Those that don't have that privilege are thinking about other things justifiably and understandably. But look, so it is with us. Our home life is secure and stable and rooted We know where we're going, and we know our purpose. Our purpose is to glorify God while we're here and to be with him forever. What is the chief end of man, according to the Westminster Catechism? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So because of this, we can endure suffering during this time. Because we know it's not going to last forever. And we know that when we die, that's not it. We can be more open and vulnerable with those around us. Because we're eternally secure. And we are known and loved by the God of the universe. Who is our friend and companion. And certainly the only one who matters. Friends, evangelize for your AA group. Men, I encourage you to open up to your neighbors, open up to your peers. Ladies, don't filter your life to your friends and your peers. You don't have to share the Romans road with them every day, but you need to be open and transparent with them. Let them see that the gospel powers your life, and they'll want to know what that means and whether they could be powered that way too. 
They'll want to know why money isn't the most important thing to you. Why success or achievement isn't what drives you. They'll want to know why you show less fear of death, less fear in general, than they do. It's because your home life is secure. And your life here should reflect that. Okay, in actual closing, I'd like to read Psalm 103. Turn there with me. This idea of what we have in Christ is not a New Testament concept. Bless the Lord, O my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He makes his he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Let's close in prayer. Lord, what more can we say? Would you imprint this on our hearts and minds? Would you help us to remember your scripture, your love, your ransom, your forgiveness, your blessing? your inheritance, and your down payment. Remind us of these things. Keep them ever present in our minds. Thank you for your goodness. Amen.